All right. So we're going to immediately jump into this. So I want to essentially start by asking several questions. We'll try to just answer them as we go through this. And uh, so the very first question I want to ask is this. Is basically, what does the Bible have to say about creation? What does the Bible have to say about creation? So obviously, as we know, the Bible basically teaches that God created the heavens and the earth. One of the most famous verses, obviously, most people know are familiar with in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? That's how the Bible opens up. That's how the Bible speaks about the way that we came to be or our origins. The concept of the topic of origins is significant. We all want to kind of find out how we got here. That's kind of the drive behind uh, our humanity to try to understand how did we get here. Because the fact is, is that how we got here also helps us to understand why we are the way we are, why we act the way we act, why we do the things that we do. So where we came from is significant. It tells us not only a lot about who we are, but it also tells us a lot about where we're going. Right? So if you come and you say, you know, I, I'm from Texas. Well, that tells us really a lot about you. Alright? Or I'm from Paso Robles or whatever. You know, it, it, we, we, can, we can learn a lot about certain people or about activities or things that they do or ways in which they might be thinking based upon their origins. In the same way the Bible also describes our origins. And so therefore, who we are, where we came from, uh, the creation account is significant because it tells us a lot about who we are, why we do the things that we do, and ultimately where we're going to be going. Again, keeping in line with this bigger concept or theme that the Bible's written in this Eastern type of storytelling, beginning, middle, and the new beginning. All right? So what I want to do with that is I want to just begin to take a look at some of the aspects of creation. And so one of the things that you'll discover is that there's a lot of different perspectives on creation in the church. A lot of different ways in which people kind of view uh, the way this has gone down. If you've ever cited this before, you realize that there is, uh, there's a lot of differing opinions out there. And I want to try to break them down to you in three specific ways in which most Christians have come to understand sort of the account of creation. Okay, So you've got people that are basically either old earth creationists, um, the second, and I'll kind of look at these a little bit further, then you have new earth creationists, all right, and then you have basically those that view the whole creation account as just being merely allegorical, meaning it's not meant to speak anything about who we are or where we came from. It's just a story. That's all it is. It's just a story. And that view has been held really oftentimes throughout the history of the church. So the first view in terms of old earth, all right, there's a lot of different perspectives that basically kind of go into this concept of old earth, what it looks like, and here's a few of them, all right, one of which is called the historical literal meaning. This is a view that basically was started or uh, made popularized by a guy by the name of Augustine, all right, he lived in the 300s, 4th century, and he essentially wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis, and he essentially looked at it this way, that it was a, it was a literal book. And the way he viewed this was that the earth is old, it's very old, right? However, life on planet earth is not old, right? The earth is old, life on the earth is really not that old. Another way, and we'll, we'll look at this a little bit further, another uh, perspective is called the gap theory, all right? What most 
people consider about this is that what happens is between Genesis 1 and Genesis, or Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then the next verse is, And the earth was without form and void. So some proponents to the concept of an old earth, alright, some of you guys are looking at me with glazed eyes. Sorry, I know it's like 9 o'clock in the morning, we're talking about creation, but, um, but, but I, I promise, hopefully, to make all this worth your time and effort by the end, alright? So you just gotta try to stay with me, alright? So this concept of the gap theory believes that there was some sort of cataclysmic event between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That something happened. Maybe God created angels, angels fell, and, uh, they would look at this and say, well, the earth is very, very, very old, and that there was some sort of a prehistoric creation. Some of, who hold this view basically would say that this is when the dinosaurs lived, and the dinosaurs died, during this particular period of time, that's called the gap theory. Another way in which this is oftentimes viewed is uh, called theistic evolution. All right, uh, This was an attempt basically around 100, 150 years ago in recognizing that um, evolution was becoming very popularized through Darwin's writings, which we'll look at a little bit. Um, what was happening was the Christian church was being affected by this and being impacted by this. So a lot of Christians... And historians and theologians back in that day were basically trying to synchronize or to harmonize the concept of biblical creation and the concept of uh, evolution. And so they kind of merged these two and they came up with this concept called theistic evolution. That maybe the earth is millions and millions and millions of years old and life on this planet you know, could be old as well. However, maybe, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly how everything sort of got kick-started, other than God created. Maybe God used some form of evolution uh, to basically get things moving and get things going. Um, some of the people that have held to this view, there's a guy by the name of B.B. Warfield. He was considered one of Princeton's greatest theologians. Uh, he died earlier in the uh, 20th century, um, and... Very, very well known. He's written a whole theological uh, writing on, on uh, just theology itself. It's actually one of the books that I've been using. I've been finding very uh, encouraging. Uh, he was a guy that actually held to this view. And I don't agree with him on his perspective on this, but he actually held to a form of theistic evolution. And basically he taught that because the Bible doesn't come right out and simply deny theistic evolution, that this is perhaps a plausible concept. Now, again, going back to the idea of what Augustine taught, meaning that this historical literal view is that this idea that maybe the earth is very, very old, and this is a view that's been around for a very long time. And the idea goes something like this. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, That, that concept of being in the beginning then moves on into verse 3, where then God says, and then he begins to create in the sun, and so on and so forth. So in other words, this concept of in the beginning could mean at some predetermined period of time, who knows how long ago it was, it could have been 10,000 years ago, it could have been 10 million years ago, it doesn't simply say. Sometimes I'll hear Christians say things like this, well, the Bible teaches that the earth was created 10,000 years ago. Really, it doesn't. Okay? It just simply doesn't. That's adding passages to the Bible and speaking where the Bible just is silent. It doesn't say that. In fact, there was a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer that came along and he had written a book Love Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite guys, here in my faith. And he's one of these guys that came along and said, listen, there's a lot of different perspectives out there on creationism. We need to basically not simply cancel each other out just because it doesn't 
you know, form or conform to our particular ideas to how things came about, but we need to have some sort of generous generosity amongst ourselves in recognizing that maybe somehow we can uh, understand these things in a way that somehow harmonizes the Bible itself. So those are some of the main basic ideas. We'll kind of get into the passages in just a moment here and try to see how this works out in a moment. And then the other form is young earth. This basically comes along where most uh, scholars or theologians, especially of today, have a tendency to lean towards kind of a young earth. And, and what I mean by young earth is that uh, not only is the earth young, but also life on the planet is also young. Now, the one of the interesting things about this is that most people that hold to a young earth view, they admit that the earth actually looks old. Okay? This is why it's in a young earth perspective is they've been led to come up with alternative concepts to explain the oldness of the earth. Here's a couple examples. One of which is they recognize the earth looks old, and they would explain it this way. The reason why the earth looks old is because there was a universal flood upon the planet that basically compacted and compressed all of uh, the layers of the earth and, and created this look where the earth actually looks old, when in reality it's very young. Right? So that's, that's one way in which they would describe it, which I think is very plausible. Another form in which they try to explain it is this. When God created the earth, or when God created humanity upon the earth and created the earth maybe 10,000 years ago, he actually created it to look old. Okay? So in other words, when Adam was created and he opened his eyes and he saw the stars, that light takes a long time to get to this planet. Right? So when Adam opened his eyes and saw stars, he's looking at light that technically should have left millions of light years ago. But here he's looking up and he sees the stars, and some would say God created the earth with the appearance of it looking young. In other words, trees actually had rings in them. Adam was not created as an itty-bitty baby, but he was a man. He was able to walk. His wife was fertile, right? Alright? And so when God created mankind and life on the planet, didn't create them as little zygotes or little babies or little embryos needing to grow, but He created them full, full, uh, um, grown and, or at least with the appearance of age attributed to it. Okay? So that's typically how a young earth perspective tends to kind of view these types of things. And then the last one is this, as I already mentioned, the allegorical. This is the idea, again, that just sort of looks at the whole picture of, of creation and says it's really not that important. What's important is the fact that, you know, it's just it, it's here. And therefore, it's sort of poetic. It's storyline. I think to some degree, there is some truth to this as well because God does write in poetry. In fact, in the original Hebrew, the story of creation is very poetic. In a lot of ways, it rhymes. And it is part of Hebraic poetry. So I think to some degree, that is true. However, whenever typically things are allegorical or metaphorical, uh, then it's usually uh, drawing upon a real thing to try to form some sort of idea in our mind. So, I don't know if the allegorical view is, is very plausible to me. Now, that brings it kind of down to this. So, in order to be a member at Calvary Slow and to be a part of the church leadership, what, what, you know, what do you got to believe of these handful of options here? All right, and the answer is, yeah. All right, there's, 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 what I'm trying to say is this: 
there's a lot of different perspectives, all right? There's certain things that are essential to the doctrine and to God and to the gospel. There are certain things that are non-essential, all right? The essential is that God created in the beginning. I think, I think, I could be wrong. I think that's a moment of, amen. Right? I mean, that, that's an essential, that God created all things. And we've got to believe that. Alright? That God, believe, God, God created all things in the beginning. When that was created, we don't know exactly when. Nobody was there. Uh, how God specifically... We're, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainties to this. And what I'm trying to say is I think that there's the possibility for us to still love one another and to still have differing concepts, differing ideas as to exactly how all of this kind of was unfolded and happened and came about. Now, I do believe, all right, in terms of the uh, the first account of creation, in terms of the account of creation of the days and the age, I do believe, obviously, God created and that the days are, are probably 24-hour periods. I am actually believe, a believer in that. However, I would also add, I, I actually lean towards the perspective that maybe the earth is a lot older than we've oftentimes attributed to be older. All right? Now, that might bother some of you. Some of you might be cool. That's kind of interesting. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. I'm, I, I believe that there's ways in which we can try to wrestle with what the Scripture teaches and how God reveals Himself through creation and ultimately bring it all the way back to the fact that in the beginning, God created now, we'll look at atheistic evolution in a moment, and we'll basically point out, I just don't think that that is a plausible explanation for our origins from a biblical worldview at all. I'll tell you why in a moment here, but I'll save some of that thunder in a few moments here. Now, at this point, I want to just continue to uh, kind of move in now and take a look at the text, and I just want to read it for you guys and kind of see, and again, where all of this goes. So, Genesis chapter 1, if you guys want to turn there real quick, it's very easy to find. Go to your table of contents and turn right. All right, here's where it starts out. In the beginning, we're going to basically just break this down. In the beginning, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so all we're simply told at the very beginning is that in the beginning, God created the beginning, in terms of some point or period of time before that particular point, period of time, there was, there, there was no time. God existed. God was. God was Trinitarian in who He was, in His nature, in His power, in His greatness, in His beauty, in His glory. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And again, as I mentioned, uh, what this oftentimes has been viewed as is that according to the historical view uh, from Augustine and many, many church fathers and leaders from that point forward, is that God created at an undetermined period of time all things that perhaps in the beginning God created heavens and the earth, all things and in between the concept of heavens and the earth, is, according to Augustine, is all things. Again, I'm not absolutely certain of this on my own sense, but this is the way Augustine taught it and has continued to talk from there. Now, I would kind of put it this way. I think, especially in light of certain creation Issues. I think it's important for us to give at least some voice to people of the past. Here's what I mean. In the past 100 to 200 years, the Christian church has felt 
as if they were under attack, or the Word of God is under attack by creation, or by evolutionists, alright? By atheistic evolution. So what's happened is that the church has fired back. And in some ways, by trying to take the wheel and gain control, I think in some ways the church is overcorrected. Here's what I mean. Is that in some ways the church has overcorrected by basically saying science is evil, or at least given the impression science is evil. We don't believe in science. Science is bad. It contradicts the Bible. We're anti-science. And we're just sort of theologically, intelligently dumb. All right? And I think that's unfortunate. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it's necessary by any stretch of the imagination to have to rule out science. Science is not the problem. Okay? In fact, I would even go on to say is that if you're here and you want to be a scientist, please, we need scientists. Christians need good scientists. In fact, some of the very first scientists were Christians. They loved Jesus. They loved God's good creation. And they were trying to understand it. Therefore, they were testing it. They were exploring it. Not only on foot, but by land or by sea, but even by microscope and telescope. They loved God and they wanted to understand how He created all things. Alright? So I'm trying to say science is not the problem. It's not the bad thing. However, I think what's happened is that in more recent years, past 100, 150 years, Christians in trying to defend off their perception of attacks, I think in some ways have come up with lots of interesting ideas, some of which just don't make a lot of sense, and others of which we've kind of left in the background great explanations, guys like Augustine, who just simply read the Bible, not under any type of threat of attack from uh, atheistic evolutionists, he just read his Bible and just kind of took it at face value. So his perspective on it is this, that God created all things, heaven and earth, in the beginning, and then it says, and the earth was without form and void. Some translators have taken this verse to basically describe the earth as basically being nothing more than a big hunk of uh, dirt, and it was just, it was bad. This is where the gap theory comes in. Some people think that, you know, everything went, went bad. The earth kind of became like this dead, horrible wasteland, kind of like a big ball of fire, just bad. Um, Augustine taught and basically believed that the earth was, was good at this point. However, it was uninhabitable for human life. Okay? I, I was watching something last night. It was about um, guys climbing Mount McKinley. All right? and, and, and I just thought, Mount McKinley is not habitable for humanity. All right? if, if, if you just got dropped off on Mount McKinley, you'd probably die. That would be where you would just, you might as well just lay down, dig your own grave, and say goodbye. All right? That's it. It's not habitable really for humanity. You end up there and that's it. And in a lot of ways, some believe that this is what happened when God originally created the earth. It was good, but it was not habitable necessarily for mankind. And so then the days of creation that follow, God begins to now prepare the earth. And I think even in particular, perhaps, God begins to prepare a place on the earth for His chiefest of creation, namely man. The Garden of Eden. So here's how this continues to unfold. Verse 3 says this, And God said, Let there be light. So, on day one or Sunday, the very first thing that God says, Let there be light, and there was light. Some believe that either God, A, created the sun on this particular day, or God spoke to the sun, Rise. Some think that maybe God was just saying, Let, let, the, let the day start. 
the good stuff begin. And God speaks to the sun, and the sun rises. Did you know? I mean, in a very real sense, obviously, I'm sure you guys already know this, but the sun really doesn't rise. Alright? You guys know that, right? Okay. Yeah, the earth, the earth spins. Okay? And uh, what happens is the sun comes up. However, from our perspective, it looks like the sun rises. But do you know that God literally sustains that? God is the one who's in control of all that. And when God speaks, things happen. But perhaps on day one, God speaks, let there be light, and the sun rose. Perhaps, and then he says, and there was light. Verse 4, and then God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the first day. We're going to continue to see that from this particular point. We're going to move now to to, uh, day 2, or Monday. God goes on to point out that day 1, Sunday, the sun coming up, and he says, this is morning, and this is night. And then he goes on in verse 6, and then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters and from the waters. And God made an expanse, and he separated the waters from under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. So I think what he's talking about here is that uh, when you talk about water in the sky, okay, what, what's water in the sky, guys? Right? What, what's that? Clouds, right? Some of you guys are like rivers in the sky. No, there's clouds, all right? Water in the sky is clouds, all right? You walk outside right now, it's a little bit cloudy. That's, that's like, think about 4,000 years ago, you're Moses writing this down. And maybe you're writing, you know, under some sort of a poetic nature, but obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit. And you talk about water in the clouds, or, or water in the sky, there's a clouds. So he says, God separates the clouds from the water that's below, which is on the earth. And then God, in verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the water, so he makes the sky. The water's under the expanse, and the water's there above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the second day. So the second day was Monday, as God continues to go through this. Um, Sunday, what you're going to see by the end of this is every single day that God creates, He's going to say, it was good. It was good. Monday, God omits that phrase. It, for Monday was not good. Right? There's, there's nothing spectacular about Monday. So the next time you wake up, and tomorrow morning, and you roll over, and you whack your alarm clock, and you realize another week, it's Monday, I hate Mondays, you're actually living a biblical life. And it goes on and says in verse uh, uh, 9, And then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And again, it's very possible, I, I think it's very plausible, that what God's doing is He's basically creating a plot of land for His cheapest of creation, Adam and Eve, to, to be placed. All right? I think probably somewhere between the Mediterranean Sea where Israel is today, and somewhere along the area of Babylon. In fact, if you look at some of the borders in the people of Israel's history, you realize that the border was a lot bigger than what it is currently. It expanded all the way from the Mediterranean Sea all the way basically over to modern-day Iraq. So I think possibly what is going on here is God is shaping this particular piece of property, the land of Canaan, for habitation for mankind. I think it's what's happening here in the, in the first six days of creation, that God is basically saying, I want to put 
uh, fish into the waters there. I want to make sure that there's animals there. I want to make sure that everything is habitable. Make sure the soil is ready and ripe and, and, and ready to go so that when man is placed there, everything will be very good. Alright? God's not working on Nebraska at this point right now. Alright? God knows that at this point, Nebraska will probably be another thousand years and maybe should never even be inhabited. Alright? So God's basically at this point Focused upon Canaan, making sure Canaan is squared away. And so, uh, Tuesday, in verse 9 again, God's making sure that the waters are squared away. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. This was the third day. So Tuesday basically comes along, and God says, I'm going to create the soil, make the soil ready, the seeds, fruit, vegetables, and seeds. Tuesday was a great day. You guys like fruit? Yeah, you like apples? You like apples? I like apples. On this day, God created all that was necessary to make apple crumble. Tuesday was a great day. Wonderful day. Alright, everything you need to make apple pie, the wheat, sugar cane, the apples, all right there on Tuesday. Tuesday's a great day. Verse 14, and the God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons. I think this is a reference to the stars. And it was believed perhaps by ancient historians that the zodiac, right, what we consider typically as a zodiac today, um, you know, you read your horoscope, that at one point that the stars basically spelled the story of, of, of God's redemption. Now, unfortunately, somewhere along the line it became perverted where people began to worship and serve the stars rather than the Creator Himself. And so what had happened is basically what we have today in terms of the modern zodiac is really nothing more than just simply worshiping the stars. That means you're looking to the stars rather than Jesus to try to figure out what you should do for the day. Alright? So if you're into astrology, I would encourage you, maybe pick up your Bible and pray to Jesus. Alright? That Jesus is a better instructor than stars. Okay? But at some point... It was believed that these stars were set up in such a way to give a picture of the redemption, of the beauty, of the greatness of God. And then he goes on and says in verse 15, And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, and they give light upon the earth. And it was so, and then God made the two great lights, and the greater light to rule by day, and the lesser light to rule by night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens, and then gave light to the earth to rule over by day and by night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the fourth day. Now we come to Thursday, and then God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, which is in the water, swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, be multiplied, fill the waters in the skies, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the fifth day. So again, perhaps what God was doing was 
creating or getting ready. Right? There's two words that are used in Genesis to describe create or make. There's um, asa and then there's bara. The distinction between the two bara literally means to basically form from nothing. All right? It's the idea of making something out of nothing. Asa means to assemble it. What you're seeing here for the most part is God assembling the original items that were used for creation to prepare it. And again, this is why I believe or I actually lean a little bit more towards this concept that what's happening during these days of creation is that God is assembling a space on this great planet which actually beats out any other rivals in our solar system to live on for life and it's a lot more warmer than Mars and God is creating a place on planet Earth for Adam and Eve to dwell. That's what God's doing. And so, and again, what we've just seen here is God basically does on Thursday is He stocks the lakes full of fish. He makes sure that the air is full of birds so that they can do whatever they need to get birds. Alright? God made chickens and God made tuna. Great day as well. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. I think it's important. You're going to see that phrase, after their kind or according to their kind, often. Alright? God speaks of the trees. Let the trees produce fruit according to their kind. So berries will always produce berries. They don't produce apples. Alright? When, when, when a cow gives birth, he doesn't give birth to a junior hire. Alright? Um, we create according to our kind. This is very significant. And it's a great blessing. Alright? When I had kids, I had no worry whatsoever that my wife was somehow going to, sort of in some unfortunate turn of events, give birth to a flamingo. Alright? I just knew she was going to give birth to a child. Right? I had no idea if it was going to be male or female, but I knew that she was going to give birth to a child. That's the way our society works. We don't give birth to transitional forms. All right? We give birth according to our kind. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it will continue to be. It's just simply because God created it that way. He's a really good God. He loves us. He, doesn't, he takes the guesswork out of a lot of things for us, and that's a big blessing. So God creates livestock, and they recreate according to their kind. And it was so in verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I'm going to stop there. Next week, we'll take a look at mankind. So with that, what I want for us to see, first and foremost, above and beyond all other things, is that God created the heavens and the earth and then God formed all of this to make it habitable for mankind that we'll look at more next week. Okay? God is a good God. He was at work in the midst of all of this, making all of this work and functionable and, and established within the land so that mankind, when they come, when they arrive, they'll have land to till. That man, when he was placed there, God says, be fruitful, multiply, have children, have a big family. God also points out to raise everything. So at this particular point, we see everything is set up ready for man to go. So I want to ask the question right now, what are some of the problems with atheistic evolution? All right, That's the next question I want to ask. 
what are some of the problems with atheistic evolution? I want to make a distinction. Because when we talk about evolution, typically what we're talking about is Darwinian evolution. Another term for it might be atheistic evolution. Another term may be macroevolution. All right? Christians, we believe in microevolution. What I mean by that is we believe that things can change. All right? That means that there's forms of adaptation. All right? Animals can adapt to new environments. We know that there's certain bugs that can actually become um, protective in their own genetic systems against certain pesticides, like superbugs, right? I mean, they can somehow formulate, they can adapt to new cultures and societies you know, within their own little bug worlds to fight against particular uh, onslaughts of um, attacks or viruses or other types of pesticides that would take them down. That's called microevolution or adaptation. However, the concept of macroevolution something becoming something entirely different, that's where we have to look at and say that's no longer really science. It's theory. All right? It's theory. And, and that's what we have to understand. There is a theory behind it. And all of this really arises out of this concept of Darwin's book. Now, again, I want to reestablish the concept. Christians are not against science. If you've ever taken that approach, maybe you're talking with somebody, maybe you're trying to defend the faith, and you're like, well, we believe in the Bible, not, not science. Alright? Stand up, take a deep breath, pray a little bit, and be like, no, science is okay. Science is not the problem, guys. We don't need to back down and be afraid of science. Science is, is very good. Science is basically the way in which we observe God's good creation. And we make theories or ideas based upon the good creation that God created. So I don't think we need to be afraid of science. In fact, I think it's okay for us as Christians to continue to advance and move forward in the observation of all things. God created us with an intrinsic desire to understand. So it's okay. So when we talk about the uh, evolution, what we're really talking about is Darwinian evolution or atheistic evolution, which basically says it starts with the presupposition that God does not exist. Therefore, since God is untestable, or you can't somehow put God in a test tube and figure out if he exists, we have to assume that God does not exist, and then start by asking the question, how did everything come to be? That's how this basically goes. If you've ever studied the origin of species, what you might not have actually known is that is not the complete name. All right? Darwin wrote this book in the 1860s, and it, or 1760s, and one of the things, 1860s, I, when he originally wrote the book, this is how the book originally was spelled out in the title. The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, and it goes on to say, I can't read that, I have it read in my notes. Uh, by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. So this concept in the middle of the 1800s when he had written this book, later in its uh, later editions, they took that last part out because it seemed a little bit racist. And the idea went something like this. That it seems or appeared at that period of time that the white race, of white people had become very prominent. They were very educated. They were definitely leading the world in a lot of ways of education. Therefore, white people are actually further advanced than other forms of people, other species, or other uh, people with different uh, skin colors. Therefore, it's the idea that part of natural selection is just simply the concept that whoever is advancing the most or the fastest, 
is going to basically going to be laying the groundwork for the next generations to come. So therefore, they dropped that and thought it was not a very good way to describe it. So what had happened from that is as this continues to unfold, one of the things that we're going to see or some of the things that I see in terms of problems with regard to atheistic evolution is this. First of all, that it assumes that nothingness arises out of or makes everything. This concept that nothing made everything or things somehow just created out of nothingness or a big bang. Now, the concept of a big bang is not necessarily antithetical to the Bible, meaning Christians, I think, can actually believe in some sort of a concept that maybe that was how God caused everything to begin. But from there, this concept that at some point in the middle of all this, life spontaneously generated out of nothing really is opposite to the Bible. Because in fact, the Bible teaches that first there was light, then matter. Atheistic evolution teaches that no, first there was matter, then there was life. The Bible starts in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it talks about the Word being the light, or the light of men. So according to the Bible, life began first with God, in God, in the Trinitarian nature. And when God existed, there was no matter. Then God created all matter. Atheistic evolution basically teaches the exact opposite. First there was matter, then life. But then the question has to be asked, where did the matter come from? That's where the difficulty begins to lie. The second thing is this, that it assumes that cosmos came out of chaos, or the idea of orderliness came out of disorderliness. That's a problem. Uh, the third thing is this, it assumes that non-intelligence made intelligence. When we look at humanity, we have to realize that even though we'll look at this more next week, mankind, we are not on the same level with God, but at the same time, we're not on the same level as animals. We're somewhere in between. And that being stated, we have intelligence. We have the ability to think. We have the ability to create things. There's something that's unique about us, guys. To assume that somehow non-intelligence created intelligence doesn't make a lot of sense, especially once it reproduces itself as many times as it has and we've got people like all of us in here. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. The next thing is this is that it assumes that life arose from inanimate objects. In other words, things that just are not alive, that life, life, this reality of life, just comes to being. Also, the fossil record is lacking. This is one of the big problems, guys, is that there are not transitional fossils discovered. It's a theory. And it's okay to admit it's a theory. It's okay to say, here's a thought. Here's a thought of how we think everything's came to be. But to say that, you know, maybe a, a picture or a drawing identifies, see, this is how we know this existed, because look at the picture. But we don't have the fossil record that speaks is where the problems come in. The last one is this, is really the problem of hopelessness. See, the reality, guys, is in our life, is there something about us that just simply says, we've got to keep fighting, we've got to keep living. But the reality is if, is, is if we came from nothing, and if our lives really have no meaning whatsoever, we're going to die, we're going to go to nothing, really the only significant response to pain and suffering is to just kill yourself. It really is. It's just to end the pain and the suffering 
and just kill yourself. It doesn't make sense to keep going on. If everything spontaneously arose from nothingness, really has no meaning whatsoever, and is headed towards nothingness, then it just simply removes this whole sense of what do you do with hopelessness. Whereas, in the Bible, basically it says that, look, your life has meaning. It's vested meaning because you were created in the image of God. Okay? So as we move on, one of the next things I want to take a look at and the questions I want to ask is this. What does creation really teach us about God? We're almost done here. What does creation teach us about God? Well, first of all, it tells us that really God is central to all of this. God is at the center of everything with regard to the creation account. That God made it all. God spoke it into existence. God is there. It's all really about God. The second thing is this, is that God is eternal, meaning that God exists outside of time. He exists outside of this world, and therefore God who exists outside of this world speaks into this world, into this existence, us. Matter, being, who we are, so on and so forth. Another thing it identifies to us is that God is independent. He is not dependent. All right? You and I are dependent beings meaning we rely upon alternative things to keep us going, right? We rely upon uh, the environment in which we live in. We need oxygen to survive, right? No oxygen, we die. This is so simple. No food, we starve. No water, we'll, we'll literally just die. That's the way we are. We are completely dependent beings. Well, oftentimes we take these things for granted because they're just there. Walk in a grocery store, they're all there. The reality is, is God is independent. God does not need water to survive. He doesn't eat. He doesn't need somehow, you know, entertainment to keep him happy. God is always happy within himself. He's completely dependent within himself. You and I, whether you know it or not, are completely dependent upon God for our very existence. Okay? So the Bible teaches us about creation is that we are completely dependent. God is independent. Fourthly, life comes from God. We looked at that earlier. That God is God is ultimately the the uh, the giver of life. It comes from Him. It's not on there on the screen. The next thing is we see that God is powerful, right? When you look at the fact that God is so in His creation, has created things that just blow your mind when you look at them. I was just looking at some pictures this morning of a volcano that just erupted down in Chile. Did you guys ever see those pictures recently? I think it was in May. Anybody see those? At the same time this thing was, was exploding, erupting, there was a massive um, storm, electrical storm over it. So some people had taken these pictures of, of insane lightning literally crashing down upon this erupting volcano. And I'm just, I'm watching these pictures and just, you know, obviously a picture never carries the full weightiness of an, a real event. I'm just looking at it and thinking, there's so much power going on in that very moment. Not just electrical, but sheer power of an eruption. That God, and that's small. I mean, that's small. That's like a firecracker compared to the sun. That's like one of those like, little poppet things. You know, just like, you know, you throw it on the ground, just like, Alright, that, that's how big that thing is compared to the sun. And our sun's small. Alright, our, our sun's kind of a medium-sized sun for, compared to other suns throughout the entire 
solar system, or throughout the entire galaxy, throughout the entire universe, it's, it's not a very big sun. And relative compared, compared, that God is bigger than all of that. So creation really teaches us something about the fact that God's powerful. He's a powerful God. That by Him being powerful in and of Himself, He also creates things that are powerful. And we stand back and we see there's little glimpses of power. We just think, that's powerful, it's amazing. Well, the God who created it is a trillion times more powerful. So we learn that about God. We also learn that He's sovereign over all. That God literally is ruler and leader over all things. We also learn that He's, he's good. He's a good God. Oftentimes God says it is good in His creation. We live in a great world, don't we? I said this earlier. Earth really beats a lot of the alternatives, doesn't it? I mean, it's a great place. We've got waterfalls, and we've got like, like nice little trails to hike and jog. And not, I mean, it's a great place. There's good waves. We live on the central coast. We have our own like little slice of heaven, right? It sure beats a lot of other places, all right? We've got a great planet. We've got to thank God for that planet. It's a good planet, all right? One of the other things too we recognize that God is really transcendent overall. It's not up there again as well. Maybe it is transcendent. That God is, is ruling over all things. Okay? With that, it's important to understand that God literally sustains everything. Um, in the period of the early church, when Paul the Apostle was going around preaching, one of the places that Paul stops is a place called Athens. While Paul was sharing the gospel there, one of the things that was basically influenced by uh, classical Greek thought was this concept, this driving force that's trying to understand what created us? Where do we come from? And some of the ideas that were basically moving around, there was this idea to try to understand where do we come from? What is the driving force behind life, behind movement, you know, things that actually move and behind our existence? What makes us who we are, our existence itself? So Paul comes and in Acts, as he's preaching to these guys in Athens, here's what Paul says. In God, in God, we have our life, our movement, and our being. I love this. Paul basically comes to these philosophers and he says, listen, you guys want to know the meaning of life? You want to know what causes movement? You want to know what gives us existence? God. He's over it all. So Paul points out, the last thing is this. We also learn about God that He's a blessing God. All throughout Genesis, God says, and He blessed them. I blessed them. I made them fruitful. And they multiplied. You guys know that God likes to bless His creation and predominantly His children? I know a lot of times everything sort of works contrary to that in our minds. We think opposite of that. We think God's out to get us. But He's a good God. He blesses. He's a blessing God. And I want to finish with this. We close things up here. I want us to really just kind of ask the question as to what is the alternative to the belief in creation? Alright? What's the alternative? Alternative. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 basically says this. Paul's writing to this, this church in Rome and he's talking to them about God. He points out to them the fact that God created all things. Beginning at about verse 18, 
He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes...